Welcome to Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm your host, Jamie Ray Wright. Today's guest has spent more than 20 years creating work that combines dance, circus arts, and science. Through this work, this artist has successfully reached audiences that enjoy the artistry of performing arts and members of the science tech community. These works have also helped increase scientific literacy through the use of art. Currently, our guest runs Creative Journey, a practice that helps artists and non-artists find or regain their unique creative voice, their inner muse, and just become better at understanding themselves. And I'm sure we'll learn more about that as we go. We at Museum of Dance are thrilled to welcome Jody Lomas. Thank you for coming, Jody. Thanks for having me, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, one of the things I always do is I try to understand artists in terms of the sum total of their uh, background. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me where you're from and what led you to dance in your youth. I'm from Connecticut. I'm from a really small town and grew up in the middle of the woods. And I was born the youngest of six children. And as the story goes, I was always dancing and trying to get on stage. So my father suggested that they put me in ballet class and the other kids got excited. So five out of six of us were enrolled in ballet, Mrs. Bartlett's ballet class, which was a one room studio across the street from our school. And she would commute up from New York once a week to teach ballet. And that's how. It began. I was three years old. I remember really hating Tuesdays because that's when my ballet class was. But I also have memories of demonstrating eight jumps in first and feeling really good at some things. And so I used to say that it took me 10 years to enjoy a ballet class. And and that's why I actually still take ballet. Because once you're, you enjoy it, uh, there's really nothing quite like it. So, yeah, so that's, that's how it began. Um, Does your family have a performing arts background? So my father was a physicist, inventor, self-taught engineer. Um, but he, he had, when he was living in New York, he w- got very into Russian, well, Jewish folk dancing. And somehow through that, he got to know Deborah Hay and some of the Judson church crowd, and they encouraged him to go to a ballet class. His story is everybody stood around looking at his feet saying, wow, look at those arches. And uh, I'm happy to report that my son has the high arches from my father. Not that he'll necessarily ever use them for dance, but and my mother's a visual artist. So she's a printmaker, painter, sculptor. And I grew up going to gallery openings with her and, and her, her friends were these strange visual artists. And my father's friends were these strange early computer technologists and scientists. And, and then there was the woods we were growing up in and all of that kind of came together to become the body of influences that, that affects the work I create. Well, growing up in a rural area, you mentioned that you took class once a week. That Mm -hmm. is not really typical. You know, a lot of folks are living in the suburbs or more urban areas where they're taking class every day. Yeah, yeah. No, it was just once a week. And then when I was nine, that teacher closed her studio and stopped commuting from New York. And we had to then go to Massachusetts to get class. And Once we got there, my sister and I uh, were the only ones still dancing, and we were invited to join the young company by the time I was 11. It was mostly teenagers. I was was a little young for it, but then it became much more intensive because we were in the young company. We were were training four to five days a week, and because it was a bit of a haul from where I lived, we would spend the summers living with different families of other dancers and she would bring up guest choreographers from New York City. And, and that's actually when I first started choreographing. Really that young? Yeah. So 
one of the assignments we were given over the winter break was to go home and choreograph a dance. And I got really into it and came back and I had created a dance called Who Put the Bop, well, to the song Who Put the Bop. Uh, who put the bop in the bop shabop shabop, which was my father's favorite song. And it was a comedy dance and people really, really liked it. The director of the young company thought it was pretty, pretty good. And then I ended up performing it for my elementary school because the young company used to do all this. We performed a lot. We would do school tours and perform on outdoor stages. We were asked to do fashion shows. And at some point we were performing for my school, my elementary school in Connecticut. And I was very nervous and because I was going to perform my own solo of my own choreography in front of all my classmates. And I was quite yeah, very terrified. And it was a huge high feeling when everybody laughed and everybody loved it and gave me a huge applause. And I was so relieved. And I think that high feeling resulted in me continuing to choreograph pretty much nonstop from that day forward. I just, I just thought, wow, that was amazing. And I continued to process whatever I was going through in, in dance form. So were you more inspired by music or by themes at that point? Um, I, in the early, when I was first starting to make dances, I was inspired by music, but I also had themes to the music, uh, to the dances. So I, I choreographed a piece to the song Lean On Me, which was really big at the time. But the theme was about friendship and, and, you know, at that time, I was just learning so much about friendship and uh, having a social life. And at some point, I started to feel that relying on the music was cheating and that I should really choreograph my dances from from no music. And then uh, and then I started working with composers to core, uh, to compose sound for the dance. But sometimes I break that rule. I um, I heard an amazing piece of music at an artist colony and that became the piece flock because the music was so moving to me. I just felt that it choreographed the dance for me and I just had to make it happen. So you can see that as a dance film that I worked with RJ Muna on. Well, that's, a, that's let's come back around to that. That's a very interesting process as far as relationship to music and dance to sound and dance trying to find my words here to ask the right question. As far as movement themes, as far as movement processes and phrases, mm-hmm. is it that you pull those phrases together and then you have a composer write a soundtrack to that? Do you work in concert with the composer? Do you work from a story, mm-hmm. a story in quotes? Is, is, how, how does this come together? Yeah, for sure. Well, So maybe not all the audiences know this part of the history, but for many years, I was creating something called the Capacitor Lab around every every show I created. So I I choreographed 10 full evening shows over my years running Capacitor. And for most of those, I would assemble a group of scientists and technologists and creatives and we would meet monthly for six months just to work on the conceptual basis and the initial designs for a show before we ever entered the rehearsal studio. And the point here was I felt that if I didn't want to create the same dance over and over again, I had to f- actively feed my mind in with new information because because the way I choreograph, I, I always felt like it was a side effect of me learning new things that as I was trying to understand the world, my mind would generate dances and as a way to help me understand things. So if I didn't want to create the same dance over and over again, I, I always wanted to have a long career. I knew I had to actively feed my creative mind and the capacitor lab fed my creative mind, but it also unified the creative team. So everybody was taking in the same diet of scientific information and translating it in their own way through their own creative form. So the costume designer was there, the composer is there, I'm there. 
And then we also just had a random interesting thinkers in the in the room, architects and other people who were just interesting and cool to have as in part of the conversation. And the dancers were there as well. And I felt that if we were going to make uh, use science as a launch point for our artwork, we should really understand the science. And what better way to understand the science is than to have scientists tell us about their work in their world and how they saw things. Now, with the music and the composers, so I usually would start with some, each dance within that full evening show has some kind of concept that I think is interesting and I'm curious about or and I want to play with. So I would begin to create the movement, create the mechanisms for creating the dance. Even if I didn't create the every single movement, I would create a score in order to arrive at the movement. And then I found that it was best if I was going to work this way with composers, meaning dance first, music later, I didn't want the composer to spend 40 hours creating an entire score because what if it did not work for me? And what if it did not work for the dancers? And what what a sad situation. So I started working in a way where I would send videos of the creative process to a composer and ask the composer to only make 30 seconds of music at the most, maybe even less, just to get the feeling tone of what they were doing and to see, is this something that is enhancing the dance? Is this something that's supporting the dancers? Are they into it? Am I into it? Or is it something we shelve and look at for something else? And this process worked quite well. In in the later years, I was working long distance with a Danish composer, Tony Martin Dombrowski. I'm I'm not I'm probably ruining his last name, but I would send him short videos. He would work in Denmark and send me back sound clips. And this worked very well. We were able to, he composed two full evening shows this way. And that's a lot of material. That's a lot of music. So I hope that helps answer that question very long. Oh, it, it certainly does. Yeah. It, it's a, it, it is very, very interesting way to work. I'm always thinking about the way I work and other people I've met and how they work in that way. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, something different than I've uh, heard before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little more about Capacitor because that, that's a big chunk of your, uh, probably what you're best known for and yep. in the dance community. Tell me, where did that spring from? So when I left SUNY Purchase, I had spent a year and a half in Europe. I'd gone to the London Contemporary Dance School and the Rotterdam Dance Academy and my sister was living in San Francisco and I decided I wanted to move out here and I wanted to start a dance company. When I first arrived, I danced with Erica Essner, dance co-op. I worked with Knee Jerk. I did a, uh, at some point I did a, a gig for Bandaloop flying off the New York Stock Exchange. And later on, I worked for uh, Joanna Highgood and Zocco Dance uh, in a project called The Monkey and the Devil. But I, I started Capacitor in the late 90s. And yeah, I had been choreographing already for a dozen years. And I had choreographed all the way through college, way more than was assigned. Um, so I, I originally was, was, I arrived in San Francisco and I thought, okay, well, what is here? And what can I draw on that's already here? It was a different scene than New York. And I thought, well, what's exciting here? There's capoeira, there's, there's new technology, there's interesting science, which I already was interested in. And that's, and I, I, I actually went on a psychedelic journey and I had a vision for the kind of work I wanted to create. In the late 90s, everybody was quite concerned about Y2K, that once the clocks shifted to the year 2000, all of this technology we were really reliant on was going to go haywire was the fear. You know, I was working in banking at that time and we were going crazy. So I, I certainly remember that. Yeah, because you were, you were wondering, is everybody's digital 
digital money going to disappear overnight, right? That's exactly what we're afraid of. Like, what a mess. You probably were printing out on paper what everybody owned or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. Everyone was getting backed up on uh, on drives and tapes. Yeah. So it's just crazy. So it's it's funny to people now. They they don't remember that moment because they weren't around or weren't old enough, but it was a moment. And so I went on this psychedelic journey and I I remember thinking, and, and not only that, there was, we were in the midst of a dot-com boom. So the dot-com uh, VCs were funding internet websites like crazy. There was so much money in tech. People didn't even know what to do with their money. And it was getting, being given to all of these young people, uh, some of whom knew what they were doing and a lot who really didn't know what they were doing. So they were just taking this money and partying like crazy, taking over all sorts of uh, warehouse spaces where where uh, artists had been performing before. Brady Street Studio closed. Dance Mission, there was a lot of activism, uh, not Dance Mission, um, Dancers Group was going to close. In any case, there was a lot of friction between the, the artists in San Francisco and, and especially the dancers in San Francisco and the tech community. There was a lot of friction, definitely some hate happening. And I had this vision that we did not need to be at odds. Maybe new technology could support people's appreciation and connection with nature, that technology didn't need, the internet didn't need to take us out of nature. Maybe it could represent nature to us in a way that we could understand it and value it even more. I was thinking about high-powered lenses showing the microscopic world or or uh, showing us the colors of a flower in a way that we might have missed before with the naked eye. And I thought, wow, there's this way that technology could support art, which would, could support nature, that there was this way that these things could all work together to help each other. And that, that became my vision for Capacitor, how to bring these things together in a way to ultimately all support nature, which is environmentalism and nature has been a big part of everything I've done. And I think it's just because of where I grew up and, and the appreciation my mother helped instill and my father in, in the natural world. So as far as uh, the melding of, of science and art, there has to be some, at least from my, my background, uh, which it's not the point of this interview, but from my background is, uh, I've noticed that scientists have found art to be superfluous as for decoration. Mm -hmm. How were you able to, to reach those minds and hearts in order to bring them into your projects? Ah, you know, it's possible that those are the people who just said no thank you to me and never, never participated. I think I... I walked in with this assumption that scientists are creative and artists are precise and that we are applying it in different ways. But what inspires both artists and scientists is the same thing. It's a, a sense of wonder and awe and curiosity. And I guess if you move from that place, that's maybe that's where what you're going to find. <laughs> And my experience with with the scientists that I've worked with is that they've they've been my my greatest fans. They have felt that they understand my work on a level that the general public couldn't possibly understand it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love that they feel that way <laughs> uh, because they feel like they can understand all the subtle subtle messaging in the work. And to be honest. Yeah, they've been my greatest support throughout my career, really. And um, and I I think it's I think it's true. I think that the best scientists are creative, and the best artists are rigorous. Have you uh, found that their constituency, the scientific communities, uh, students, audience, peers, have taken to your work as well? Yeah, I think it, it it definitely 
was clear when when Yerba Buena first presented us and we we premiered Synaptic Motion at Yerba Buena's forum. Mark Bamuti Joseph was the presenter and he said plainly, this is a totally new community for us that you've brought. We did pre-show talks every night with with the different scientists who contributed to the process and the different artists. And and there was a lot of excitement about this combination, this collaboration. And and Yerba Buena was was pleased with with the the fact that it was a different community than had been going to their shows in the past. And hopefully they continue to go to Yerba Buena and see other work. Let's hope that we can expand the audience, that's for sure. And especially especially expand the understanding mm-hmm. of, of art and definitely an understanding of science as well. That that certainly during this pandemic, a lack of understanding of science has shown its ugly head. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I've been working on a a a different project that relates to to that that I'll I'll touch on now if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so I during the pandemic, there's not that much performing happening, <laughs> not that much rehearsing. So I started working on a couple uh, a few different things. One is a new collection of sculptures, large larger scale scale uh, sculptures and full room visual art interactive installations that are really just in the design phase now. I they have not been fabricated. And then is this similar then, to the uh, props? I mean, props is such a small word for what you. Do. Yeah, I like to call them motion sculptures. They're similar to the motion sculptures, but larger. And wow. some are, are really quite a departure from the motion sculptures because they're, but they all are choreographic in nature. So whatever sculpture I create or installation I create, it's not complete until the human body interacts with it. And so for um, the for the uh for the audience, some of your motion sculptures for your shows have been. A large metal ball that was simulated to earth, cups that dancers were able to climb into and climb out of for your uh, ocean project, mm-hmm. and really just large scale, almost like jungle gyms. Thing yeah, yeah. So, so my works, my my motion sculptures have been made out of steel, out of wood, fiberglass, ropes, bungee. Uh, or a combination of all the above. Sometimes they're aerial hung, sometimes they're floor-based. And so the new collection is a lot of that, but just going bigger and not having it tied to some the dance company. So the the most the new collection are, are are things that are really just meant to be interacted with by the public. And and they could be choreographed on for an opening, but they're meant to be long-term or permanent art installations that that the public can touch and interact with. I, f- I feel like uh, it's so sad when you see Henry Moore sculptures on display and there's a plaque that says, do not touch. I feel like Henry Moore's sculptures were totally designed to be touched. <laughs> So my work is definitely designed to be touched. And um, and then I also started to redesign some of my existing sculptures for private use. And I created a website called sculpturalfitness.com. So people can order sculptures and put them in their backyards and, and they become all ages play tools for families and their friends. And they're based on science concepts. So families can talk to their kids about flowers and flower reproduction or insects or ocean life while everybody is playing on a three-dimensional sculpture. And adults and children can get their exercise together. You don't have to do everything in isolation. You don't have to send your kids to the playground and sit there and read your phone and then go to the gym by yourself later. You can do exercise and play in a way more casual 
social way with with just your friends hanging out. Oh, we're going to do some pull-ups and rotate into an inverted space while we're chatting about our lives. So I really like this approach to fitness and interaction and the idea that science becomes something that you introduce your kids to before they go to school and in a very casual social way rather than something that's serious and heavy and that they get graded on immediately. Well, that sounds great and to be able to bring these things home and have them at your, at your place is uh, certainly a great thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as, far as the, uh, just, just stepping back a little bit to the, uh, the work you did with Capacitor, then moving on into your, uh, your new endeavor with Creative Journey. As far as, as far as what was going on with Capacitor, it's, it's a lot of different things. You had the music, you had the science, you had dance, contemporary dance, and you had circus arts, you had contortionists and aerialists and the like. How, how did you find your way into to that world? Was that part of your upbringing? Um, so I, circus is something I discovered coming to San Francisco. It is not something I was exposed to in Connecticut. There's just a lot less of it in in that scene i mean maybe it's changed since i lived there probably has but when i grew up there just wasn't a lot of circus arts around and so that was something i i found out here i dated a juggler for a long time and he had a lot of circus friends and that i guess was the beginning but i remember in okeanos i was working with carrie on a concept i had called seahorses. So this and, is Carrie Delaplane? I'm sorry. Yes, Carrie Delaplane. Yeah. And we were working on this idea I had for the this movement duet called Seahorses. And we were just struggling because the moves I wanted to do, I, I physically just couldn't do. And then I started search I, and I thought, wow, I really should try to find some contortionists to try this. And I called around and I found Inca. And then she said, oh, I've been working with Elliot. And we brought them in, and it was totally the right choice. Uh, Seahorses was a contortion duet, but we we had to find that it it was I didn't I had never worked with contortionists before. I had often worked with very flexible dancers because they were able to do cool things on the sculptures. Well, Inca Seeker is is next level as far as flexible. Who is Inca Seeker? Yes, she is. She she's. She definitely is. And she took that to seahorses to the next level. And then also we created the octopus solo together. And yeah, so she's she's phenomenal. Um, so yeah, and uh, the work has always been kind of acrobatic and athletic. So I had people in the company that were acrobatic before that. And we just kind of... I think I think I've just always been been drawn to people who could could do so much with their with their bodies. I mean, of course, I want them to move the audience emotionally. That's really the point. But just having a lot of ability was helpful in terms of uh, uh, fully exploiting the motion sculptures. Well, you know, the motion sculptures and the movement serving the the story and I, I use the word story in quotes but serving serving the the, the process for I'm just, you mentioned the octopus duet I remember seeing that many years ago and just seeing just how much it was integrated into the piece where you weren't thinking well here's some dancers doing stuff with their bodies but that you were imagining well this is how an octopus would move in this environment mm-hmm. uh, along with the uh, film that was projected behind. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was always going after what's something new that we can, like, who can we recruit as our teachers? Can we, can we, can we learn to move from an octopus? Can we learn to move from a seahorse? Can we learn to move from kelp? Uh, how do we innovate the actual movement vocabulary? How do we not rely on the movement we just learned in ballet class and 
are simply reordering existing moves, but how do we come up with something that's we've never actually done with our bodies before? And, and that kind of innovation was really exciting, exciting to me. So did, did you find that presenting these things in, in public that folks who were not scientifically oriented found a greater understanding of the various subjects that you covered in the, your works? Well, that's a great question because what we, we really played with this line a lot because I never wanted it to be edutainment. I never wanted to say, come to my show and learn about the ocean. It was always meant to be come see a show that was inspired by the ocean. And I never wanted to trap the creative team into being accurate or serving the science. So it was a tricky line because I wanted to share with the audience what inspired the work because the science on its own and the concepts on their own are fabulous and and exciting to me and interesting. But I also didn't want the science to box us in or people to be watching the show saying, wait a minute, I don't know if I can see exactly the zooxanthellae on that hard coral animal. You know, (laughs) I didn't want them to be getting stuck trying to interpret the dance while watching it. So what I landed on is I would share in the program what inspired the work as here are some concepts that the creative team found exciting. Read them when you sit down to just kind of get your mind in the world that we're exploring. Then watch the show and let it flow over you and try not to win it. You know, there you don't win the show by seeing all of the concepts play out and being able to say, Oh, I see that concept. I saw that concept in, in the third dance. If that's fun for you, cool. But I didn't want it. I didn't want the audience to feel trapped by that, or to feel like the art had had to illustrate the science. And it was a delicate balance. I think a lot of people, some some people loved reading the concepts in in the program. There are people who just like learning things. They really enjoyed that. Some people didn't like it because they felt, you know, they want their art to be abstract. And they don't want to feel like there is any logic behind it. And I would try to say, well, you know, don't read the program. If you don't want to read the science, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, It's not meant to be fully descriptive. I think it worked best for the people who would see them as different courses of the meal and not necessarily try to make it all happen at this have have it all work in the same way. That's very interesting. And I think I, I accidentally moved into a mistake that people make around dance in general is that they look at a dance and say, what does it mean? And they're dissatisfied if they don't know what it means. So uh, I, I'm embarrassed that I actually went in that direction concerning, concerning your work. But uh, it's just such an interesting concept to have science and arts together in this way that is not you know, experimental as far as demonstrating the, the science, the way the dancing robots in Boston and things like that are, but in trying to integrate it into something that is more organic to everyday life in a way that scientists sometimes are isolated. Yeah, you, I mean, it's it's like you want it to flow over you because the art is, the art I create at least, and and with with my collaborators, it's, it's never one thing. There, there are six things, six levels being touched at the same time. There's an interesting science concept, but then there's a personal story. And then there's this, you know, critique of society. And there's, there's all this stuff happening at the same time. And, and you kind of just, you know, are it's best if you let it flow over you. And, and what makes it profound is that it's not one thing. It's, it's all sorts of things happening on different levels at the same time. So the pastor being such a huge part of your life, what, what, what have been some of the highlights going on either um, the pastor yeah. or through that time period? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there are these really crystal moments that 
that have stuck with me. There was a a moment when I was on stage at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana performing Within Outer Spaces, and I was doing this digital duet, and there was this crystal blue light, and I'm performing this duet, and and there was this moment of suspension where I felt everybody in that audience, you know, over 800 people all synchronized our vibration somehow. And I just felt it was like a tuning fork. We were all in sync for that moment. And, and it really was something, you know, I didn't feel like it was me. It was me with all these people connecting on the same vibration. I know that sounds super far out, but it, it was far out. It felt far out. And then there were, there was a moment in biome when we were performing uh, the carnivore piece and and it's just this really raw animal piece and we're on the stage and I'm with Carrie Delaplane and Ross Hollenkamp and we're just devouring each other and and lunging towards the audience and I just I just felt this amazing power of earthy raw impulse and that the audience was totally connecting with us and frightened of us and engaged with us all at the same time. And I think all of these experience, I I've always been interested in creating experiences for audiences. Um, every, every performance, sure. I'm expressing myself, but I'm really creating an experiential arc for the audience to to come with me on. And that's how I think that's why I was always interested in the full evening format so that I could take them on a 90 minute journey. And, and that's also what the sculptures are about. It's a, they are, a, it's, it's going to give a participant an experience of a feeling and it's going to draw out a certain feeling. So, yeah, I'm trying to think what else, what other moments in capacitor really, really stood out. There, there have been a lot of group moments and moments where just something happened that creatively just was so exciting. Developing the perfect flower sculptures. I was at Jurassic and. I was trying to draw something that was in my mind. I couldn't really draw it very well. So I wandered into the the shed of the groundskeeper and I took some wire and I started bending it and he walked in and caught me. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in your shed. <laughs> and he he got interested in what I was doing and gave me a bunch of materials and tools that I could sculpt the three perfect flowers out of wire and then take that to a blacksmith. So. I think it's been a, you know, Capacitor has been a very challenging and wonderful and fruitful platform for me to process my life and explore the world and explore uh, experience design. So it seems that Capacitor is somewhat on hiatus. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I'm hoping that it comes back because I love it. (laughs) But you were working on something that you called creative journey that you mentioned to me recently. Could you tell me a little more about that, please? Yeah. So again, during shelter in place, I was trying to, uh, at the beginning, I told, we, we, I had a meeting with the dancers and I said, Hey, you know, sometimes people don't want to take a break and they fight it and they try to stay perfectly in shape and they try to continue to do everything as they were doing before. But taking a break is a really good thing for artists. It's it's great to, to get distance from your form and then you get to re-enter it later with a new, new outlook on it. So I said, let's not try to keep everything going as it was. Let's take a break, chill out. Don't worry about staying in shape, whatever. And you know, nurture your creative soul a little bit, do writing, do something else, read some books. And, and then when things kind of kept not coming back, eventually, you know, you get the itch to do stuff. Uh, That's when I started working on the new collection of sculptures. And 
I also started um, developing a program for guiding people with psychedelics in a in creative journey. So that's my new practice for using my techniques and my experience with. So you're, um, you're talking about things like mushrooms and the, and the like. Yeah, I'm. Um, yep, uh, psilocybin and and other medicines. Uh, that I use in my creative practice and I have since the late nineties and helping other people harvest insight from these experiences. The medicine can just be used in so many different ways. There are a lot of people approaching it from the therapy lens, from the shamanistic lens and but I'm, I'm using, I'm, I'm taking it from the artist lens. I'm not just helping artists. I'm helping whoever wants to use an artist's approach to the psychedelic experience. And I'm really excited about it because it's totally my comfort zone. It's something I've been doing for a really long time. I'm, it's just, I don't know. I, I I long since had an idea that people should do what's easy, what comes easy to them, and this is something that comes easy to me. It's 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 um it's fun for me, and the results have been really amazing. People I've been working with are in a very short period of time making real changes in their lives, and and it's really really exciting to facilitate that to and to apply what I know and what I've done for myself all these years to open that up and make it available to other people as well is really great. So how, how have you say you've used psychedelics in your own creative process? How have you done that? Yeah, I mean since 95 I've been having psychedelic journeys maybe four times a year. And then uh, I've also created experiences for groups of people. There was a period of time in Capacitor where uh, I remember having this idea that I didn't want to work with anyone who I didn't feel comfortable doing psychedelics with. I just felt like I wanted to be that creatively free and that comfortable and that open. And I wanted the studio to be a place of creative freedom. And I think we achieved that. The studio in Capacitor's rehearsals was very open, very free, very positive. Not that we said yes to everything, but the flow was happening. It was playful. It was fun and always a very creative space. And everybody was considered, was expected to creatively contribute and participate the energy was infectious. And then there was a period where, yeah, so so we would, you know, capacitors been to Burning Man a few times, I mean, many times. So we would have group psychedelic experiences there and at, on other retreats during cast parties and whatnot. It was, it was, um, but then also my friend circle, I, I was often the designated guide and I would set up the experiences for the group. So yeah, I, it's definitely influenced my work. And since I've been thinking about it more, it's kind of wild to go back and, and realize how much it's affected my work. And, and then it makes me think about all art creation and how all art creation is affected by the medicine or the chemicals that the people who are creating the work are ingesting. If you think about caffeine and ballet, I feel like there's a real connection between pushing the earth away and the caffeine experience. I think there's something about alcohol and the raunchy dance experience and raunchy in the best possible way. I'm not being judgy here, but and I think psilocybin uh, is a very earthy, earthy experience. So even though I was trained in ballet all my life, why am I creating dances where the performers are climbing each other's bodies horizontally, like like vines across the floor? I mean, the work, some of the work I cre- I've created is just so so organic, so earthy, and is not really based in my training at all. <laughs> 
So I think I was being influenced in more ways than I even was aware of. I mean, I knew I was being conceptually influenced. I was vision questing, but I, I, I actually think it was working its way in my various psychedelic experiences were working their way into the movement itself. So in, from your own creative work, how are you transferring this to individuals through your creative journey project that you're working on now? Totally. That's an important question. And I was really curious myself how that was going to work out. It's, I consider my clients, my collaborators, and I partner with them. And it's not a a therapist-patient relationship. I don't objectively sit back and listen to them and have them answer all their own questions and whatnot. I'm creatively engaged. So I'm bouncing my ideas off of them. And I'm saying, well, when you say this, it brings this to my mind and, and I'm giving them creative exercises and assignments to do at home. But then I'm, I'm also doing creative assignments for them as well. And it's a, uh, a lot of it is creating uh, artistic artifacts for ourselves. It's, it's creating art, not for public consumption, which is something I've also always done. I've created little art projects for my own process, just to help me deal with my life. And then to help other people harness the power of that, the ritual of making your own little poetry project or your own little visual art project to help you process something or retain something that you don't want to lose is really great. It's really fun. I mean, there's, there's intrinsic value in art making that has nothing to do with any industry or, or success and failure or buy and sell. It's, it's just alchemy. It's personal alchemy. How, how do we, transform ourselves, grow ourselves, evolve, evolve ourselves with these creative tools. So do you find that the non-artist is also well open to your practice? Yeah. I mean, I've never thought that the artist had the, you know, had the lock on, on creativity. We're all creative and, and some of us have had the luxury of indulging that creativity more than others. So yeah, no, I, I haven't had trouble getting people to generate creative content in my practice at all. It's not about the product though. I mean, and I make that really clear, even in my own art practice, I've given art talk, uh, artist talks where I say, yeah, you know, I'm not very good at drawing, but I draw and I call them my shitty little drawings. And I take my shitty little drawing to, uh, you know, a fabricator. And I say, can we turn this shitty little drawing into something else or or I take a shitty little drawing and then I bend a piece of wire and then I mash some clay together. I mean, I'm not trying to make something amazing up front. I'm just trying to get my ideas out any which way I can. And then eventually, if you want to actually make an art product, you have to refine it a lot and, and create something amazing eventually. But in this process, it can stay a shitty little drawing and it can stay a shitty little mashup or whatever. But the experience of creating it and of capturing the experience of, of harvesting something from your mind and your heart and, and putting it into something outside your body is, is the important part. Well, it seems to be a uh, great way to bring people together to, to bring out those things that are repressed in so many folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know so many people who are, who do not, call themselves artists will say, I'm not creative. I, I don't know much about that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. helping the people to open up in that way, I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think these labels can, can get kind of, you know, annoying. I mean, it, you don't even have to be creative. You just have to have a mind and a spirit and a heart and just, you know, it's, it's just, 
it's just your process. It's just your relationship to yourself. It's nobody ever has to look at any of it, <laughs> you know? So yeah. is creative journey the sum total of what you're doing now, or do you have other things on the, on the back burner that you might be bringing to us? Well, I, um, you know, capacitor is still happening. It's just, you know, we're, we're, there are events we want to plan. It's just such an uncertain time with things going up and down in terms of people going out or not going out. So I'm, I'm mostly focused on creative journeys where, and if you're interested in it, you can find it at jodylomask.com. Uh, sculptural fitness, which is sculpturalfitness.com, which is the um, reproductions of existing sculptures. And then the new collection, which isn't in public because I haven't yet had most of it fabricated, but I'm continuing to pitch those new designs to developers and galleries and private individuals to see if I can get more of those made. And otherwise, I, you know, I'm a mom, I have some kids, and it's a pretty, pretty full life <laughs> when you count all of those things together. Well, you certainly have made a, a great impact on the uh, San Francisco dance scene in so many ways and uh, so many ways that I did not know. I had no idea how busy you were and I already thought you were extremely busy. So <laughs> I want to thank you very much for spending a little time with, with us here. And, you know, Jody Lomax, you are a true artist. Thank you so much, Jamie. And I've I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And anytime you want to hang out and grab a coffee and talk about art, I am game. I love this. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jody. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening today. Mod Pod, the Museum of Dance podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other discerning streaming services. Remember to subscribe and rate us. Give us five stars because we are fabulous. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.